Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 14, Beetlejuice. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. But before we get into our movie, we are going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? All right. Well, welcome to the corner. Uh, so thinking about this movie, uh, it's, I think it's kind of an interesting take on hauntings of various sorts. So my question today is, if you were to die right now, what place or who would you come back to haunt? And what would your style of haunting be? Would you be a vengeful ghost or more like the Maitlands who are just pretty chill? Uh, what, what would it be like for you? Well, I plan on being as extra in death as I am in life. And if I don't get to haunt a gigantic, like, 17-room Victorian mansion, I'm going to be real sad about it. Because I'm going to wear the traditional long, flowy, blood-drenched robes. There's going to be a lot of weeping and wailing and moaning. And you bet you're going to turn over in your bed and see my decaying face next to you. So it's going to be pure evil all the way. But with fashion. Make it fashion. <laughs> Love it. I, w I was thinking about this. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, who knows? But uh, I guess I was thinking about if I were to go to a place that was like of significance to me, kind of like thinking about how it was for the Maitlands and they just kind of went to their home and they were kind of stuck there because it was uh, significant to them. I guess a place that I was thinking of was my uh, grandparents' house in Northern California. Uh, we went there a lot growing up, and it was one of my favorite places and a lot of connections uh, to it. Uh, since then, um, my uh, grandparents have passed away, and somebody else had bought the property, and they actually, like, tore the house down, so it's a bummer. So maybe I'd go, like, haunt that area <laughs> or or them, and now they have some other weird house there. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'd, a combination of, like, being at a place that I like and uh, being peaceful, but also maybe trying to <laughs> keep the the bios out of the area. I don't know. I guess that's what I thought of. Um, for me, I think I would. I don't know. It's kind of a hard question to answer, but I think if I had to answer, I would say I would haunt like some place that was like a place that people actually think is haunted now like eastern state penitentiary or something like that and then like i would do things that would make people go home with stories about it or like haunt gettysburg or something like that uh i think that'd be fun to just like make people be like oh what the hell like something actually happened but then because it's one of those famously haunted places nobody would really believe them anyway um i'd probably just haunt my mom's house to be honest i don't feel like i i don't feel like i'm a very vengeful person so i don't have anybody in mind that i would particularly want to haunt so i'd probably just be like a really passive friendly ghost 
We haunt my mom and like leave her little notes and stuff. <laughs> Aw. I think for me, yeah, it would be hard to not just want to check in on all of your loved ones and spend all your time haunting there. So of course there's like I think I think ultimately probably all of us would do some degree of that. But in terms of just extravagant, ridiculous haunting, I think I've read a few stories about haunted theaters, like not just movie theaters, but also, um, you know, stage theaters where there's plays and musicals and things like that. And that always sounded so, uh, in terms of haunting, seemed fairly glamorous to be like haunting a really cool old style theater. That seems like that would be a lot of fun to be able to do that. One, to just be able to continue to see the media that generations and generations after your death are making. So you can be like, okay, this is a good barometer of what it's probably like out there, that they still care about this or that they created this new thing. So you kind of get a sense of what was going on outside. And you'd see all sorts of people coming through if it was a movie theater, for instance, too. And that just seems like that would be pretty cool. But other than that, you know, of course, I'd want to try and provide some sort of proof to people if there was life after death. But uh, I don't know. Who knows what we'd find on the other side and what reasons there might be why we couldn't do that. But yeah, that's, I think, what I would do outside of, you know, I don't know, haunting whatever family I still had in existence for the next generations and so on. Well, nice. So anyway, um, as you may have noticed from the roll call, we've got Brianna back. Yay, welcome back, Brianna. Aw, thanks, guys. I missed you all so much. Welcome back. We missed you, too. There was no one here to clutch their pearls at things that were said, and so... Oh, my gosh. Ugh, y'all have been starving without me. I know. It's okay. I'm back. I'm back. Pearl clutch, pearl clutch, pearl clutch. Yay. And we've got you back for hopefully a good movie, one that you're interested in talking about, because we're doing Beetlejuice from 1988. I guess uh, usually, you know, we say the year. It's worth specifying because there's also a musical out there and there's also a cartoon show, neither of which that we're really going to actively be talking about, but they might be brought up. For those that don't know, it was directed by Tim Burton, who's also done things like Edward Scissorhands, Corpse Bride, Batman, Sleepy Hollow, Big Fish, and as we covered in a previous episode, not The Nightmare Before Christmas. And another flashback to The Nightmare Before Christmas is one of the writers on this was Michael McDowell, who you may recall we talked about how he quote-unquote wrote the original screenplay for The Nightmare Before Christmas, but that that didn't really work out and it seemed like he mostly just did a lot of drugs and tried to transcribe the music that was already written. But uh, the other interesting fun fact about Michael McDowell with this particular movie is that he's, so all this started with his original script, which was more of a straight up horror film where Beetlejuice was kind of a leathery winged demon. Probably a lot of people who are listening to this are already familiar with that concept. And that he was murdery and rapey, and it was not family-friendly at all. And so uh, there were rewrites that were done by Warren Scarron, who also worked on Beverly Hills Cop 2, and he also would go on to write Batman working with Tim Burton again. And uh, apparently he did some uncredited work on Top Gun, the original. I'm not clear to what degree, but it struck me as maybe some script doctoring, possibly. Because usually if you have an uncredited writer, that's kind of thing that happens with that. But if anyone knows, let us know. 
Um, also involved with the story of the film creating the initial story was Larry Wilson, who also wrote The Adams Family, the 1991 Adams Family movie. Uh, he's also worked on some episodes of Tales from the Crypt, and more recently he wrote a movie that came out just a couple years ago called Ainbow, which is an animated film. I'm not real familiar with what that one is. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. No. But in any case, the back of the box description for this movie, if you haven't seen it, is What's a yuppie ghost couple to do when their quaint New England home is overrun by trendy New Yorkers? Hire a freelance bioexorcist to spook the intruders, of course. And that's, that's it. That's, you know, that's all you get for the description. Huh. So for the intent of the film, I tried to find some quotes from both Tim Burton and from... Uh, Michael Keaton kind of more talking about how they viewed the film in terms of the genre, but it was a little bit hard to find anything where they were kind of making comments on that. They mostly talked about the production side of things and just kind of getting things together. So unfortunately I couldn't find anything to quote there, but I did find on an entertainment tonight interview with a bunch of the cast. We had some descriptions where Gina Davis described the movie as it's a comedy but it's a ghost story and it's supernatural. Lots of interesting, bizarre things to look at. And then Jeffrey Jones, who played the father of the Dietz family, uh, he called it, uh, it's a supernatural comedy about life, death, and interior design, which is a better tagline than the back of the box description that I already read to you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, and then as far as audience reception goes and just kind of looking at... Um, Looking at the meta tags for this, as far as how streaming sources label this, uh, I found nine instances where it was labeled as fantasy, as well as nine where it was labeled as comedy, three where it was labeled as horror, two where it was labeled as sci-fi fantasy, one where it was labeled as sci-fi, one as horror comedy, and then Redbox put the uh, label of award winner. <laughs> award winner, well... Yeah, which was funny to me for all of the movies that we've looked at, that I've looked at on Redbox and haven't come across that entry before. You've got Silence of the Lambs that won the five coveted Academy Awards of Best Picture, Best Director, you know, Best Actor, Best Actress, all of those. It didn't get the award winner label, so that's interesting to me on just a few levels. Anyway, and then... The other thing that we usually take a look at is Google and Wikipedia search trends, which um, we've talked about before. That doesn't necessarily make a film a horror film, but they do tend to be searched more often in October. And this movie has the textbook October boost in searches that you would expect on both platforms, increasingly so as time goes on. Like it is, it is basically the picture-perfect example of what you would expect to see from a horror movie in terms of searches. Um, another thing that I thought was worth making mention of as well is that uh, the Saturn Awards, which are American awards presented annually by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, who are basically just trying to recognize films of that genre, they awarded this film in 1988 the Best Horror Film. That was specifically the award it won. And then also it actually won an Academy Award for hair and makeup, which is kind of fun because you get to watch Sybil Shepard and Robert Downey Jr. present the award for it, which was, I don't know, it's kind of funny. So with all of those things in mind, 
Is it horror? What did everybody think? I think that this is a classic horror comedy done in the, you know, like 80s Tim Burton style. This is a classic for me. I watch it over and over. It never disappoints. Also, Lydia Dietz's bangs, everything. Just putting that out there. Uh, for me, so I, I like this movie as well, uh, but I couldn't bring myself to call it horror. I think it's comedy and it's, uh, I, yeah, I, we'll get into stuff, but I, I'm going not horror now. Uh, in my head, I was kind of comparing this to other similar movies, and one of the movies that came into my mind was uh, Casper. You know, that movie, I think it was in the 90s, that Casper film. Uh, Yeah, Christina Ricci and Devin Sawa, classic, hello. Yeah, so that that's like a very similar kind of style and feel, and I think could maybe fall into the horror comedy genre. And so I feel like this film is much more horror than that film. So that's why I'm calling this film horror comedy. I'm going to say not horror, but still comedy, yeah, but not horror. I you're, I really went back and forth on this one a lot, and I ultimately ended up saying that it was not horror, but still comedy. Um, but yeah, we'll get into everybody's reasons for that. We're going to duke it out. Bring it on. Okay. So the first thing I figured we kind of get into is, first off, do you feel like there is a difference between a spooky movie and a horror movie? So Matt, for instance, you brought up Casper, so maybe that's a good example of the same concept. If you agree that there's a difference between a spooky movie and a horror movie, what do you feel the difference is? I feel like everything that Tim Burton does, or maybe most everything that Tim Burton does is spooky, but very little of it is actually horror to me. Um, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it is just like imagery, but not necessarily like the actual content of it. Like there's a lot, Tim Burton likes a lot of the spooky imagery um, and, you know, kind of the grotesque forms of things uh, that, I, I don't know, that says spooky to me, but it just doesn't deliver on the horror for me. Um, I would agree that a lot of things that Tim Burton does, uh, stylistically speaking, are horror flavored. There's a horror aesthetic to a lot of what he does. But the reason that this movie specifically is is more horror for me is because of the darker tone themes that it deals with. Um, I think that it brings to light in a very lighthearted manner, mind you, because it's a comedy. It it makes the viewer deal with a lot of like big dark questions like we're looking at things like suicide and child brides and you know really terrible ways to die um i think the delineation is really less the aesthetic and more the subject matter and that's where you kind of find a balance in a lot of tim burton movies because a lot of them are spooky not all of them are horror if we're talking about spooky versus horror i would say i've seen a lot of tim burton movies and i would say this is the most horror of all of them that i've seen personally versus spooky so i do think there is kind of like that spooky kind of 
family fun vibe that does sort of occur in this film. But then I also see there is like some pretty disturbing imagery and a lot of the things that for me kind of pushes it over the edge into that horror comedy realm. Like, I know it's not a very objective measure, but I feel like if I was watching this as a child or even like a tween, there's moments where I could be like freaked out or scared about it. And that kind of what sort of pushes it over into horror comedy for me. I mean, I definitely think there's a difference between a spooky movie and a horror movie. And I think Brianna mentioned aesthetics, and I think aesthetics have a lot to do with whether it's whether or not it's a spooky movie. And I think this movie definitely has the spooky timber and aesthetic, but I still don't feel like it's horror. I think there are scary moments, but I don't think I don't think it was the director's intention to scare as much as like entertain and make laugh. Yeah, and I guess that's I think about the the horror aesthetic side of it. I think that definitely comes into play. I kind of look at it as like to me this would be a Halloween movie. That makes sense. But in the same way as Halloween is one thing dressing up like another, I kind of feel like what you have here is a comedy that's dressing up like a horror movie, but is missing some of the essential elements that would still make it a horror movie. Uh, For me, those elements would be sort of trying to build any kind of real tension surrounding anything. At least that's what I'm feeling, because usually if I would say something like this is a horror comedy, I would think you'd have kind of that whole tension roller coaster, like leading up to something and then letting off the tension with the comedic moment. And uh, it's not necessarily the only reason that I kind of feel that way about this movie, but I think that it doesn't really aim for that. And I do really, I do like this movie. I just maybe think that it's, it's maybe not trying to do that. I've seen Tim Burton do horror because I've seen Sleepy Hollow. And for me, that is 100% a horror movie. Um, But yeah, so I think that there's, to me at least, this is not quite getting there and maybe isn't meant to be, especially where they rewrote the script to take it away from the horror side of things that it originally was. But I'm curious to see what does everyone feel the most horrifying elements of the film were. I think this had a lot of body horror in it, even for a comedic film. Um, When the Maitlands go to... I don't know, what are we calling it? The waiting room, the other side. Um, And, you know, there's the guy who's very clearly flattened by a truck who's just kind of flown in under clothesline. And, you know, how am I looking? I feel a little flat. Like, to me, that whole thing, like the girl who's clearly sawed in half, the guy who has had his head shrunken and, you know, all that other stuff. There's a lot of, there's enough, there's enough um, comedic gore in this for me to qualify that as a specifically horror-oriented movie shtick element, for me anyway. And then, of course, there is also, you know, the overarching theme of death and suicide and, you know, depression and change and having things taken away from you. Like, there's enough, to me, like, those elements are what created the tension, um, even though it wasn't like a traditional horror story arc, necessarily. That stuff all makes sense to me. Uh, I think the another thing that like 
I can see as a little, or, or the thing that I guess made me feel maybe the most uneasy or the most, uh, I don't know, like a serious, there was a serious thing going on was like the idea of, um, death for dead people. And I think we're going to talk more about that a little later on, but that, I guess that was kind of the thing that kind of like, that was the threat to me, I guess was just that idea. So yeah, that was my. Yeah, you're right. The death after death thing that kind of hit home. I think probably, I, I think you definitely have a point about, I don't feel that there's really any, scenes or attempts to build tension in the movie as far as like horror tension maybe the one moment that is kind of like jump scary or horror tense to me is when the father is like in the kitchen and the thing flies through the window to him like adam because like that that's like the most kind of unexpected moment i think in the film but Maybe, like, the worst body horror is probably when the Maitlands are, like, they, like, warp their faces and, like, rip out their eyeballs and, and like, and then, you know, she has his head chopped off and she's hung herself in the closet. Uh, those kind of elements, to me, are the worst as far as horror. Yeah, there was nothing really, there was never a moment where I felt like it, it was horror, but there's definitely those scary images like like you said the Maitlands when they stretch their faces and also I felt like the Beetlejuice uh snake was pretty creepy <laughs> with the, his head on it um yeah so those were probably the moments that I maybe cringed a little but for the most part there was never a moment personally that I questioned whether or not it was horror but don't you guys think that like the all of the horror that you're mentioning is pretty classic? Like this is very it it almost had like a 1950s kind of sci-fi horror vibe to it in terms of like the special effects and the you know the gag jokes that they were making. I think it all I don't know, for me it really played off as horror because of that. So one of the ideas, one of the things we mentioned for instance, just taking like in isolation the the Maitland's scare tactics like them uh you know cutting their head off ripping their faces off and uh and distorting their faces and stuff like that i feel like to me again going with the sort of halloween analogy it's like normal safe people that you trust in a halloween costume if someone came to my house dressed up as one of the things that the Maitland's did and I knew who it was, and I knew what they were like as a person, and then I just saw them, like, wearing that as a mask, which is essentially what's happening, and knowing that they can go right back to normal by removing that mask, or in the Maitland's case, just putting their face back to the way it's supposed to be. I think that kind of undercuts it. So it's, it, again, it's sort of like that idea of, in that element, dressing up like a horror movie, but undercutting all of it because you know who they are, you know that they'll be fine, uh, and it's it's played as a joke, you know? Yeah, the thing I was thinking about with that is like when uh, uh, the Lady Maitland, uh, she, you know, has herself hung in the closet there, but then like they just come through and like toss her body aside as they're looking through the coats. Like, I don't know, it's just a, 
it's you know it should be kind of a scary moment but it's entirely undercut by how the film treats it i I guess that was my feeling on it i'm just thrilled that you've dubbed her lady maitland like lord and lady maitland (laughs) of the house maitland this is glorious i missed (laughs) (laughs) y'all sorry for my bad memory (laughs) her name is barbara thank you so since we're already kind of talking along these lines, I figured we kind of skip around a little bit on here. So let's talk about kind of the gore and the body horror of it. Um, one of the things, I guess, as far as tone goes, whether it's horror or it's not horror, uh, the implications of violent deaths, they're shown in the afterlife sections of the film. And however, the attitude with which they're presented is kind of, flippant and non-remarkable by the people who are experiencing them slash has happened to them and it's also kind of also framed in the context of this kind of uncaring bureaucracy like people were making jokes about it the things that have happened to them whatnot so i'm kind of curious for each of you does the way in which those aftermaths of violent deaths are portrayed in the film does that make it feel more or less like horror to you does it matter that they're kind of doing it in that flippant presentation? No, because I think the whole film is really presented very well in, I guess, what you'd call gallows humor. You know, you're dealing with this these really heavy topics, but you're also kind of brushing over it and making light of it. And, like, there's always kind of a shoulder shrug with each literal tragedy that, whether it happens on or off screen, we know is occurring. I think it plays really well into, like, you know, the the Tim Burton world of, oh, hey, I'm a goth, and, you know, oh, death happens, ha, 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 moving along now. Yeah, I, I guess for me, that's kind of one of the things that, like, it makes it not quite hit the beat for me on horror, because, like, the death, the, all the death stuff is just, like, like you said, just, like, moving along, like, most, like, the Maitlands hardly skip a beat. They, I mean, they have to kind of be like, Oh, I guess we're dead. And then they're stuck in the house, but otherwise, you know, they're perfectly fine with their lives as they are. And they're just kind of carrying on with things that, and I guess that's why for me, like the scariest part of this movie is the potential for death after death. Cause like the actual death wasn't even supposed to be serious or, anything at all from from the Maitlands to all the other deaths that we see you know even though we see some of the the violence of it it's all still supposed to be lighthearted. I mean let's be real the scariest thing was the New York decorator coming in and spray painting that perfectly good wallpaper I did clutch my pearls several times I also like at the end that the best way that Beetlejuice had to go ahead and scare Otho was to put him in a non-stylish pastel, like, baby blue suit. That was the worst (laughs) thing he could do to him. There are worse things than hell. It's true. Yeah, that was really funny. I was like, I thought, like, if it was a, I guess I'm kind of convincing myself otherwise, but if it was a horror movie, he would have, like, turned Otho into, like, a terrible creature or ripped his body apart but he put him in an ugly suit (laughs) he would have made him work retail at the gap forever 
Yeah, I feel like just the fact that there even was an afterlife portrayed in the film automatically downplayed the horror and kind of relieved the tension because the whole time we're seeing like these people died, but they're not actually like they're not gone. They just go somewhere else or they're confined to their house forever and they can still interact with the world tangibly. People just can't see them. And so I think that really some of the tension and also the fact that the afterlife is kind of its own functioning society and everyone's just kind of okay with being dead for the most part. It's just like kind of the way things go kind of relieves a lot of that horror for me. I don't know. I think having to spend eternity as a civil servant in an office is pretty much the worst thing ever. Okay, so I'm going to have a skip ahead a little bit because I did want to talk about this as an element of this film. How did you all feel generally about the afterlife as presented in Beetlejuice? And do you think it holds to any particular religious view in its portrayal? Yeah, curious to see how you felt about all that. I don't think it was religious. I think it was bureaucratic more than anything else. Um, maybe it's more of a political statement than a religious statement. I don't know. How did everybody else feel about it? In a way, I kind of saw this as like, maybe when you start thinking about it, almost like the most atheistic version of the afterlife I've maybe seen in film that I can think of right offhand. You could be right. Like, it just developed over time as people died in the same way the society did here. Like, oh, people died, and then they were on the afterlife, like, developing the rules, figuring things out. And they're like, oh, we can build structures, and maybe we should make some rules, and maybe we should put people in certain roles, and let's create the same sort of ridiculous uh, Kafka-esque bureaucracies that we had while we were alive, because we're the same kind of people, and we don't know any better on how to organize all of it. Oh my god, that's terrifying. I'm done. <laughs> I mean, it makes a lot of sense with how how it lays how the movie lays everything out. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really give any indication of a higher power of any sort. It's just you know, there's a just the bureaucracy that is in place, but there's no nothing that is indicated above that. And then there's no enforcement of the rules either, right? Because they're sitting there as this governing body. And basically the only thing that they control is how you interact with them. So when you go to the office, yeah, you have to wait in line, but do they punish the Dietzes for losing the the book for the recently deceased? No. Do they punish Beetlejuice for interceding and doing the things he was doing? No. Like it's they have no authority to do anything. They're basically they're giving suggestions and telling you what you should or shouldn't do but they don't seem able to actually enforce or punish anyone for anything that they do in flouting those rules. So it's like they're, they're just basically there as a guideline. Like there doesn't seem to be any reason why you would even have to adhere to or follow anything they told you. I mean, they can make you get eaten by a sandworm. I think that's the worst they can do, but you have a fair point. But then, like, if you get eaten by a sandworm, you just end up back in the waiting room like Beetlejuice does at the end. I know. It's like being in the DMV for all eternity. Again, I feel like we're in hell, y'all. <laughs> the thing I was thinking about with all this, too, is like like you're saying, Steve, there's no real enforcement of this. And it seems like 
it's almost like you could think about it as like the bureaucracy is, you know, they get after the deets for Juno gets after the deets for, um, you know, potentially exposing themselves. But uh, the like possible consequences of that are the D or uh, the, the Maitlands getting, uh, getting exercised. Like the, the consequences just for them, like, I don't know. It's more of like the bureaucracy is just like kind of out for, I mean, they're not doing a great job because they don't tell the Maitlands what to do or how to do it. But, um, you know, the rules are kind of there in place to protect them. If the afterlife had been presented as a maybe more traditional religious afterlife, you know, of your choosing some sort of, some sort of form of hell, some form of heaven, some form of, declared purgatory would that have influenced the way that you classified this film i don't think if they had maybe i'm not understanding the question correctly come with me on this journey so if if the movie had delineated like a quote-unquote heaven or a hell in addition to the office which i'm assuming is kind of like purgatory I feel like that would have taken away from the whimsy that is this mu- this movie. I don't think that that would have worked. I don't think it would have necessarily changed my stance on whether or not it was horror. Only because I feel like most, well, a lot of traditional horror movies, especially when they're dealing with the afterlife, death, demons, and etc., it kind of adheres to a more Christian synopsis. But I don't know. This I don't think it would have changed it too much, but I also don't think it would have fit with the tone of the film at all. Yeah, again, the fact that there was an afterlife relieved the tension for me, for the most part. But I suppose if there was a heaven and a hell type of afterlife, and the hell was particularly scary, and our characters actually at a risk of going there, it might have been a little more scary, because that would have made it a little bit more serious. I would have felt maybe the stakes were higher. I guess I felt that the afterlife portrayed in the movie was just a low stakes environment i like they never felt like i mean yes to be a civil servant forever would be definitely suffering but it didn't seem like the deetses were suffering or were going to suffer and for the most part i don't feel like the majority of the people going there were going to suffer they were just waiting for information yeah, I think the portrayal of the afterlife was mostly meant to be comedic. Although it, I think the the death for the dead kind of little scene where they're in the hallway there is maybe the most horror element of the time where they're there. But um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I don't know if particularly if making it more tied to the religious views of the afterlife would have made it more horror, but. I will say that what it was was more comedic and how it was portrayed. So even if it wasn't religious, maybe more fire and brimstone, more tension, less of a jokey tone would have made that part of it feel more horror to me. I think, I guess a a thought I had with it, which is uh, maybe not right on point, but um, I feel like there's kind of an idea of, you know, there's the the idea is like life is what you make of it. And, you know, you can 
you know, be happy or not. And at least to a degree, that's partially your choice. And I feel like that they, the, that idea is sort of presented in death in this movie as well. Like death is what you make of it. And like the Maitlands, uh, kind of end up getting everything they want. And it's maybe a form of heaven for them because, you know, they, all they wanted was a vacation at home and to not be bothered by the outside world. And of course they have the deets move in with them and they are bothered a little bit, but that also brings them Lydia and they were, you know, wanting a kid as well. And Lydia ends up kind of filling that role as well. And so I don't know, it's at least somewhat a little bit of form of the maybe heaven for them. I don't know if that's, that's probably not exactly on point, but I guess back around to the question I, I don't, I don't think, I, I guess I agree with what you guys have all said. I, I feel like putting a religious, uh, a more spe- specified religious tone on it, uh, wouldn't have changed my feeling, feelings on whether it was horror or not. It just would have taken away from the message, I think. I think the message of this movie is hell is other people. Because the Maitlands just want to yeah. have their cute little yeah. Victorian home. And these yuppies move in and want to ruin everything. Granted, they got a really cool goth daughter. She's all right. But the rest of them, not so much. The moral of this story is is haunt your own house and make sure no one else is going to buy it. That's the moral of the story. Housing security. <laughs> the other thing that's kind of funny, too, about that whole the Maitlands got what they wanted idea, and which I agree with because, you know, they kind of got to, yeah, everyone gets to leave them alone. And it's a little bit late in the game, but they introduce the idea that maybe they'd like to be able to have a kid and they kind of get to have a kid. And it's weird, though, when you start dissecting the fact that Lydia's parents, the Dietzes, don't want to be parents. They suck. <laughs> And so at the end of it, not only do the Maitlands get what they want, which is to be parents, the Dietzes get what they want, which is to not be parents. And Lydia's happier finally having parents parents that care about her and are involved with her. And love her for the little weirdo that she is. It's a beautiful story. Really, this is a family story, y'all. I don't know why this isn't on Hallmark Channel. (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty happy ending for a horror movie, just saying. Okay, but we have all agreed that a horror movie can have a happy ending, and we've also agreed that horror movies don't necessarily need to be scary. It's true. I'm just giving you a hard time. (laughs) I'm giving you a hard time. It's all good. I'm glad you're back. Yeah. Samesies. When you just when you just said there though, like about being like a family film, kind of made me think about how you know we've talked about things existing that are children's horror as we sort of have classified in the past in the past maybe this movie is family horror it's family horror Ah. that i can i can get on board with that right family horror put another circle on the venn diagram it fits a lot of the children's horror like boxes but it obviously the humor is not made for children or this story is not made for children, so. It's it's kids horror, except Michael Keaton says fuck in it. <laughs> it's PG horror. <laughs> Wait, this is PG-13, wasn't it? 
Because the F bomb? PG, actually. Oh. Not even PG. Oh my gosh. It was PG and he got a fucking? Wow. What? How right. did that pass? Did he really say the F word? Okay, so you got to think a little bit about the era that we're dealing with here. So we're dealing, this movie came out in 1988. The PG, the PG-13 designation didn't come out until after 84, I want to say, because Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out about that year and basically necessitated the idea that there be some ranking between PG and R. So PG-13 was, I think, still... It was still relatively new, if not maybe fully in effect yet, because that's only a four-year difference from when there definitely wasn't one to when this gets released. So I think that's part of what we're dealing with as far as the ratings go, is they're kind of like, well, it's not R, so where else do we put it? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Family horror, that's where you put it. Yeah, family horror. Whoever came up with that, yeah, that was good. <laughs> all right well and we've we've kind of chewed around the edges of this i guess just to head on so we make sure we get everybody's kind of interpretation of it i think at least for me anyway the the most horror aspect of this film is the idea again of death for dead people i think it adds tension of course to the final act of the idea that there could be something where the maitlands could be banished um so I guess, how does that weigh in for everybody's classification of this film? Did you find that concept horrifying? I think pretty much everybody has, has said at this point that that was probably one of the disturbing elements of the film for you. But just so we spell it out, I guess. Yes, I think it was because I think that traditionally speaking, death is supposedly the quote unquote end. And the concept that there is something worse after death that can happen to you and you're not safe and you can't just kick back and like chill in your bloodstained robes, that was pretty horrifying for me. And that was enough to up the stakes for a quote unquote now rebranded family horror film for me to be like, yeah, this is totally horror. Yeah, that was certainly the closest it got for me, especially when you're at the end watching the Maitlands kind of rapidly age and deteriorate and and then you know just the idea of their their souls getting banished to whatever that you know the room of lost souls or whatever they call it in the uh, bureaucratic building um, that's definitely the most horror part of this movie for me yeah also the fact that like to add to that the maitlands didn't do anything wrong like, why should they get banished to the creepy ghost tank in the office? Yeah, just because Otho thought he knew what he was doing or that it wouldn't have an effect on somebody. I don't know. Otho's a tool. I'm just going to say it. He's a freaking tool. And I've heard that he can't even change a tire, so. I bet. And he looks like he uses dippity do in his hair, ultimate judgment. But all that being said, he's also the actor that plays him is fantastic. Glenn Shaddix. Yes. Yes, he is. Yes. And he will also show up in our next episode where we cover Heathers along with Winona Ryder. It's Winona Ryder Appreciation Month here at Is It Horror? Kind of is. To me, the death for the dead people thing, it kind of smacks a little bit of, I can almost see like the wheels turning where they're like, okay, 
we've got our dead people. We've shown that you can't really do anything to them because they're pulling their faces off. They're cutting their heads off. They're distorting their things and they're fine. So what do we do for these people? Uh, well, let's think for a sec. I know, ultra death. We'll create ultra death. That being said, the moment where they're experiencing what I've now termed ultra death trademark, you know. TM, TM, TM. That's probably, that's definitely the biggest source of tension in the film and the scariest moment of the film. Um, it, and it lingers in it a fair amount, but then it kind of takes it away extremely easily, which I don't know if you're presented with the idea that Beetlejuice is necessarily more than just a ghost. Of course, he portrays himself as such, but we can't take his word for it. And so if he is just a ghost, then he's able to just fix it by doing a golf joke, basically, and they're fine. So then that makes you wonder, like, could another ghost fix it that easily? Or is he something special and he's learned a few tricks that the average ghost wouldn't be aware of? I would love to know Beetlejuice's like exact story because I think he gives a couple of different well, he and Juno give a couple of different stories, like backstories, and there's little hints that he drops throughout the film about like where he's been, like, oh, doesn't he say like, oh, I'm a Harvard business grad or something? Like he's sort of the I quintessential trickster. Yeah, yeah. So he's the quintessential quintessential, I can't talk, trickster. He's kind of like the um like the Norse god Loki character. Like he is just there to fuck shit up. That is his entire purpose. He's an agent of chaos. But I would love to know like what's the like what's the real VH1 behind the music on Beetlejuice himself? Does anyone have theories? I, I one thing I guess I I mean this so Juno says like oh he used to work for me. I guess that gives me or it gives me the feeling that he it's possible he learned some behind the scenes things like she's part of the bureaucracy maybe he was too at one time or or i mean they kind of say that he was too uh so maybe he does have the inside track on some of the the tricks and the tricks of the trade i guess uh so yeah i don't know maybe he he's got the upper hand I feel like he that? was the assistant manager who stole a bunch of shit and then quit. I was just going to say, do you think he was working for her in life or in death? Well, I think he was a, he committed suicide. And as a result of his suicide, he was automatically assigned to her. Like, I think that's the penalty for offing yourself in this universe is you get to be a public servant. Like, that's awful. <laughs> that's the worst thing ever. They definitely put just enough out there to to imply that that's probably the case, for sure. I had the feeling that what Juno was referring to was that he worked for her in the afterlife bureaucracy, but yeah, I hadn't thought about that, Mitz, that maybe it was before then in their actual lives. Oh, wouldn't that suck to, like, have to work for your, like, same boss in the afterlife? I mean, my current bosses are great, but, like, I've had a couple of, like, real humdingers, y'all. Yeah, and then magnify the whole idea of, like, you might like someone now, but how many people do you know that you'd be sure that you'd like for an eternity? <laughs> yup. Ugh. 
All right, well, let's dig into Beetlejuice, um, the character himself. Whether the movie, whether you thought the movie was horror or not, is Beetlejuice a horror character? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think he personally is a horror character, yeah. But he is also very comedic. He's horror comedic. Yeah, but I'm just putting it out there. Traditionally speaking, the devil is a sly mofo, and he could probably make you laugh. But he can't win a fiddle battle in the South. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Embarrassing. Shame. Ding, ding. Horror character Beetlejuice. No, I don't think so, but I I also do think he's like a Halloween character or a spooky movie character. Like, I wouldn't classify him with, like, Michael Myers and Jason, but I would classify him with, like, Edward Scissorhands, and I don't know, who else do we have that's like a Halloween? Uh, Jack Skellington. I don't know. You know, he's got more of like the, like the family character appeal. I think he's just got flair, and I think that uh, the Michael Myers slash Leatherface types don't necessarily have flair. They might shamble and slash, but they can't crack a joke. Okay, well, let's put him on the same playing field then, because this is one of the things I was thinking about. How does he compare to other wisecracking horror villains, i.e. Freddy, Pennywise, Chucky, the Deadites from the Evil Dead series? Because those are all kinds of characters that spend a lot of time like wisecracking and joking and teasing their victims. How does Beetlejuice compare to those types of characters? If we're saying he's, we're sure that those are horror characters, how does he compare to them? I mean, Beetlejuice is manipulative. He's not gonna, he's not gonna stab you necessarily, but he's gonna manip manipulate the crap out of you so you, you know, spend your life in the ghost tank of doom. Yeah, I... I think the difference for me, like, I think he's right in line with a lot of those uh, villains that you mentioned. I think that he, I think he is a horror character, but the movie doesn't let him be a horror character. Like, I mean, he even mentions when he's like listing, oh, you, you want me to haunt somebody? Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to kill people? Like, he just like throws that out offhandedly. I totally think he would kill people. But the worst thing we see him do in this movie, I mean, oh, well, maybe that I mean, I'm probably forgetting things. But the worst thing I can think of that he actually does to at least a living person is like drop them from like a one story uh, balcony. And they just like show up later with a bandaid on their face, but they're fine. Like in an another movie, in a like actual horror movie, we would have seen him. He could have been the exact same wisecracking self, but he actually hurts and kills people. Uh, I guess that's maybe the difference for me. I think I read somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong. Originally, this script envisioned Beetlejuice as like truly evil and demonic, like he was basically a winged demon type. Um, and I don't know who made the decision to change that, but there was a, a time and a place where it was specifically decided, hey, guys, we're going to lighten up on this and we're going to change the direction of 
how we're going to utilize the horror elements. Yes, that is all correct. The original script written by Malcolm McDowell had Beetlejuice as a full-on uh, yeah, winged demon who was murdering and raping and was a full-on horror character. Um, by the time you get Tim Burton coming on with the film and Warren Scarin coming on, they changed it and tweaked the whole tone of the film into a, what we're seeing now. So you could have had a big, bad, mean Beetlejuice who did all the horrible things, but instead we got Michael Keaton. I also feel like, I don't know, I feel like his motivations are not as evil as the other wisecracking villains like Freddy and Chucky and stuff. I feel like he's more of like a chaotic neutral type of person. He's like, he's completely only here to cause chaos, but only when it is like in his own terms. He And he's also not particularly wanting to kill anyone. He will do it, but he's like, He's his his motivation is not just to kill and be violent like the classic horror movie villains that we know. So he's not that much of a threat it seems like. He's really just an affable narcissist. And the thing that sticks out to me too is that he made a deal with Lydia to save the Maitlands and he did. Once he was free and under no obligation other than giving his word to do so, he still chose to save the Maitlands. And he also had made the agreement to not kill anyone and again chose not to. So now if the idea is he didn't want to, then of course he was never going to do it anyway and just playing up his persona. But uh, that could also be perceived as another element of him keeping his deal which I guess that feels a little bit different either as well. Like ultimately he just wants to be free. And like you said, he's kind of an agent of chaos and he just likes to muck things up and, you know, cause some, some issues, but mostly he's just there to pull pranks. It does feel like oh, one of his bigger motivations is just getting finding the best situation for himself personally and whatever he has to do along the way, then that's fine. But yeah, I think that's a really good point that he's not, his motivation isn't to go kill people really. I thought it's also worth pointing out that he is only in the film of a, the film has a 92 minute runtime, but he is only in the film for a little over 17 minutes. That's crazy. He certainly made, I mean, Michael Keaton did a fabulous job with this role. He's clearly like one of the most interesting characters that we see on screen. The entire cast was phenomenal. But like 17 minutes and like the movie's named after you, bro. That's pretty cool. And I guess they definitely tossed around some different titles. Yeah, wasn't Scared Sheetless one of them? Yeah. Yes. I was going to say, it's not uncommon for the main sort of horror protagonist to have very little or almost no screen time in a lot of these movies. We've definitely discussed that before. That's true. It would be interesting to see how much time, say, since I had already mentioned them as a possible similar character, it would be interesting to see how much time Pennywise actually spends on film during, you know, the new It or even the old It. Oh, that's an interesting take because it's not a lot. And I really love the new remake of it a bunch. Jason's not even in his own movie. 
No, yeah. you're right. His own original movie. Yeah, he's he's only at the very end of uh, the original Friday the Thirteenth. In fact, he's not in part five either. Spoiler for a few decades old movie for anyone who doesn't know. But you know what? I'm going to tell you something about that spoiler. I'm saving you the trouble right now. Don't watch five. Don't watch Friday the Thirteenth part five. You can go ahead and skip that. Don't even worry about it. Watch one through four. Move right over to six. Five didn't happen. I did you a favor. Don't worry about that spoiler. <laughs> that just makes me want to watch it more. I know. I kind of want to watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's the first entry where all of the characters are people that you desperately want to die. You're like, oh, thank God someone killed them finally. <laughs> so another thing that we did talk about, I guess kind of wheeling back to it a little bit. And of course, if you have more thoughts on Beetlejuice as a character specifically, feel free to, to bring that up. We did bring up that one of the jokes or at least comments things that they've commented on is suicide within this film because we have civil servants that are implied slash all but said to have committed suicide in the afterlife we have lydia contemplating suicide and uh brian i think you brought up earlier too that you know this is this is a heavy subject matter that we're dealing with within this comedy so i guess how did that affect the way that you viewed this film I think that because it dealt with it head on um, and it didn't necessarily glorify it. Uh, yeah, that did ha that did have a big bearing on how I classified this in terms of being horror. I don't think that a kid's horror movie would address that at all. I just don't. I think that's too taboo. I think that goes back to the, um, you know, the thing where you said where, oh, horror always deals with taboo. For me, that's a really big one. And, you know, it's still an issue today. I think that rings true for a lot of folks. So, yeah. I think it still it still plays with it in a light way, though. It's certainly a heavy topic, um, but it's it's dealt with for the most part in a comedic way. Even Lydia's uh, thoughts about suicide, like, are a little like kind of I don't know if melodramatic is the right word, where she's writing her note like, "I am alone." no wait cross that out i am utterly alone like you know just uh, i don't know there's still s sort of a uh, i don't know just not quite taking it as serious as the actual subject matter is yeah but i mean lydia's character is fairly affluent she's totally misunderstood by her parents so okay and she's a teenager they're all depressed let's be real but the other characters, like specifically the um, uh, the lady in the office where she says, oh, had I known what I know now, I wouldn't have had my little accident. And she holds up her very clearly slashed wrists. We don't necessarily know the backstory of the other characters who are implied to have committed suicide. So that's heavy enough for me to like it. That takes away from the whimsy addressing the suicide for me personally. So aside from the horror classification, this is just something I have. This is one of those movies where I have so many questions about the afterlife in the way it's portrayed here. And I would really like to see maybe if there are answers to it. But um, so this, regardless of whether or not it's horror, looking at the Maitlands, they are presented as being able to do a lot of different morphing of their body. Uh, you see 
Barbara tear her face off. You see Adam sever his head. You see them both distort their own heads in order to kind of be more scary. So it feels like, to me, there is nothing keeping you, after you've died, looking the way that you are other than your own personal choice. Because when they morphed their heads, their heads stayed that way for until they decided they didn't want it to look that way anymore. So do you think, in terms of the characters, and is there any reason they have to look that way? Like, if you've got the guy who's burned to a cinder, can he decide, well, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and morph myself into looking like a normal person for the hell of it. Could he do that? I'm wondering if they even know what they look like because they can't see themselves in mirrors. Yeah, they mentioned there's no mirrors down here. How do I look? Like, maybe that's the case. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they have no clue how they look, yeah. And maybe they do kind of, they can manipulate how they look and they can be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, pull my eyes out or rip my face off or whatever. But after time, they just naturally revert back to whatever they're supposed to look like. Uh, I don't know. I guess that kind of makes sense to me. But you still have the Maitlands like actively making themselves look normal again as well. So I don't know. It's an interesting concept. Well, maybe that's the answer to the question that we had before, too. Just the whole idea of why do the Maitlands look normal and no one else we see who's died look normal? Maybe everyone looks normal right after they died until they get comfortable with it, and then they revert to what they actually look like when they died. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's true. And maybe eventually the Maitlands will look like they were drowned or got in a car wreck or something. All I know is that when I die, I better die with a perfect lip on, just saying. <laughs> I feel like for the most part, we kind of went through all the questions that I had. So I guess, are there anything else that people wanted to bring up? Other, other possible horror elements that we feel like are up for discussion? Or just anything about the movie you wanted to talk about? Totally unrelated, but who's a better 90s goth girl or 80s goth girl? Christina Ricci. Or the illustrious Winona Ryder. Go. I have to go with Winona. She does pull it off pretty well. I'm not gonna... I don't have, like, citations. I just... That's just my feelings. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think Christina Ricci kind of embodies it a little bit more than Winona. But Winona did a really nice job. Not to say she didn't. But I feel like Christina's, like, more... Like, she's more known for being Wednesday, where Winona's not as known for this. I'm willing to say that Winona walked so that Christina could run, or skulk, whichever you prefer. <laughs> Definitely skulk. Well, because I think if you're looking at Christina Ricci in terms of, like, the Adams family, her role's there. She just, she owns it, and she's that all the way through without apology or change, Whereas I think you can read Winona Ryder's Lydia in Beetlejuice as reformed goth at the end. Like she was goth before because she was suicidal and then she's over it. And then she's just wearing a normal school uniform at the end of it. And she's singing happy songs. So it's almost like she went from goth to boss, like in the IT crowd. <laughs> nay, nay, nay. She just became a perky goth and there's a big difference and we are valid. <laughs> 
is it like that meme with um Eleven from Stranger Things? It's like me during my emo phase, and then me as an adult where I'm a thousand times more depressed, but I have to dress normal for work. Yes, that is completely accurate. Another, I, I don't know where this fits, I guess. the, I mean, this is just a, a random thing. Like the Maitlands are possessing people, but they do it in like a fun way. And they, you know, make people sing Deo. But like they're totally in control of of the humans bodies like i don't know there's it's one of those uh, i feel like an aspect of this movie where it is playing with some horror themes in a different movie like that would be terrifying for those people like i had uh, something possessed my body and made me run around the room and do things that i didn't want to be doing but you know in this they you know sing deo instead i mean they also get their faces grabbed by shrimp cocktail that's a little disturbing that's true, yeah. When your seafood bites back. We didn't talk about those shrimps, but man, those were some yucky looking. Like when I first saw them in there, I was like, something's up with those shrimp. Because like, why do they have really weird comedic prop shrimp? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a little bit telegraphed, right? It was the 80s. Things were different. You don't know what their seafood was like. That's fair. I've definitely seen recipes in out of like Sears catalogs that looked pretty similar to that shrimp. So, you know, speaking of the possession, it just makes me think, of course, of the Beetlejuice line of like, I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. <laughs> and this is like 167 <laughs> times seeing it. Dude, that movie is, he's not wrong. The Exorcist is hilarious. It is hilarious. <laughs> The other thing I feel is a little bit weird about this movie, too, is, uh, all right, so you've got, at the end, Beetlejuice trying to marry an underage girl for, for who knows why exactly. I mean, his stated reason is that it will get him free somehow, but that's not explained, and he's not reliable, so we don't know exactly what reason he would think that would be a good thing to do. And so anyway, and then, of course, the weirdness of, like, they're making the cartoon series and like, you know what we should do? We should have those two be best buddies. That feels like what we should have happen. Thank you for bringing that massive continuity error into the, the scope of things, because that always bothered me so much about the cartoon, which I love. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, yeah, like the dude's basically trying to make her a child bride for absolutely no discernible reason. Like, and then they're just going to be BFFs in the cartoon show? I don't think so. It's such a strange choice. Cartoons in the 80s were weird. Facts. Well, and I know we don't have an answer to this, but like, yeah, what is he trying to get free of? Like, are we saying that, I mean, there's some context or some things you can maybe extrapolate a little bit. Like, you know, when, you know, Lydia says, t tells him like she wants to die or whatever. And he's just like, why? And he like, it sort of feels like he's trying to get out of the death realm and back into the living realm. So is that what we're saying? Or is he somehow trapped in some sort of 
like it seems like he has to abide by some other rules that other ghosts don't because you know Juno tells tells the Maitlands like I think he's like currently residing or like stuck in your graveyard but why is he stuck there why why can't he come out of there until the Maitlands summon him basically why is that a thing and then they have to go down and like dig him up too out of the foam I I don't quite understand why all that's happening it's just the magic of Tim Burton. Yeah. And why do why does he have to get Lydia to agree to marry him, but then once he's out, he is forcing her to do it at that point. He doesn't now need her consent for whatever reason. Or is it just like he's going for it anyway on the hope that it won't matter at this point if he got her consent or not? Like, it mattered and then it doesn't seem to matter. I don't know. I feel like the marriage of the living and the dead is kind of a, a theme in a lot of different like fairy tales, horror stories, legends, myths. Like I feel like that's a thing. I mean, Tim Burton did it again with Corpse Bride. And usually the living person has to consent to the union somehow. See, even the dead people understand consent. Yeah, but then but then he doesn't seem to care about it for some like he cares to get her consent initially, but then when the actual marriage is going on, suddenly he doesn't, he's speaking for her, you know? It's like, would that still have worked? I don't know. Maybe the flip side of that is like creepy, yucky dudes are going to be creepy, yucky dudes, whether they're dead or not. Or they were looking at the original script and I was like, remember in the original script when he was really rapey? Let's keep a little bit of that for fun. For funsies. <laughs> Just for funsies. Keep it spicy. To me, it sort of just seemed like they didn't really have a great idea about how this movie should have its climax. So they were kind of just like, all right, we got to create some sort of conflict here. That's like, but the only, but the way that they're going to stop Beetlejuice is they're, they just have to say Beetlejuice three times. And that's really super easy for someone to actually do. But we're going to make it like, like, and we gave Beetlejuice all these like powers over ghosts specifically for this moment. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It felt like there, that, that climax just doesn't make a lot of sense overall to me. So I agree. Yeah. And then like, I don't know that, or we've already mentioned it, but then the thing at the end, like, you know, he gets eaten by the sandworm, but then. I don't know where did that come from. Why was it able to like jump through the barriers that it wasn't to get through, be able to get through earlier? And then again, he's just like back in the waiting room. There's no real, no real consequences to that, really. And then is the sandworm laden field? Is that on Saturn? Because he's like, I've been to Saturn. You've been to Saturn. Sandworms, you hate them, right? And then it won a Saturn award. Ta-da! Full circle. It's all Saturns all the way down. Pandering. He pandered for that award. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, though, I've never seen Michael Keaton in a role that's quite like this one in any other situation. So it was, like, very pleasantly surprising to see him in this and see, like, not only... His comedy, just like with how he talks and the jokes that he says, but also his like body comedy 
physical comedy, I guess is what you would say. Um, he was really, really good. So that was very interesting to see. Michael Keaton is a fantastic character actor, and I'm going to go on record and say that he is the best modern Batman full stop. Oh, that that almost derailed me because I'm like, do I agree with that? I have, oh. I'll get to that in a sec. Okay. But in terms of his performance here, it's kind of funny because to hear him describe it, it's like how everyone feels at every job they've ever had, which is like, hey, I had a meeting with Tim Burton and he was telling me about what this all was going to be and it didn't make any sense to me, but I kind of got in my head about how I thought this ought to work, so I just made up a character, I got some wardrobe, I had some stuff put together that seemed right, I showed up on set and I did my thing and no one said to stop doing it, so I guess it was good and I just kept doing it. And didn't, was it Tim Burton or the the writer who originally wanted Sammy Davis Jr. for this role? Like, to, I can't Tim even Burton imagine that. Did, yeah. Totally different vibe. Totally different vibe. There was a real wild list of, like, other people that they considered for all the roles in this film. If you ever, like, just read through the Wikipedia, like, it's just a wild list of people. Yeah, and it's like Tim Burton wasn't sure he wanted Michael Keaton, and Michael Keaton wasn't sure he wanted Tim Burton. And then they met each other and like, oh yeah, you're really cool. Let's make some magic. And let's make a couple Batmans afterward. And the world was a better place for it. Also, Michelle Pfeiffer's latex Catwoman suit. Oh, changed my life. And the world was a better place for that as well. I really do, just to clarify my thoughts on Batman, I do really like Batman 89. It's the Batman, the live action Batman that I grew up with that after Adam West's Batman, that was kind of like, oh, I didn't know Batman could be like super cool too. Um, that being said, I think Batman Returns, I'm going to go ahead and say this on the record, full stop. And yes, I've seen Batman and Robin and I've seen Batman forever, but full stop, Batman Returns is the weirdest Batman movie. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is a really fucking weird movie. <laughs> very, very weird. I mean, like, they were going to have Penguin shoot missiles at the city. Like, it's it's weird. And there was this whole sort of joke back and forth conversation between Kevin Smith and Tim Burton where uh, Kevin Smith was more or less like, that's not stuff that happens in the comics. And then Tim Burton's like, well, I've never read a Batman comic. And Kevin Smith's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but i do really think that michael keaton he's I, I really enjoy him as batman i think he's really good in it um i i think that on the whole i prefer the christian bale christopher nolan batman movies a bit better and the portrayal there of the character a bit better because it's kind of more about the character whereas Michael Keaton, he does an excellent job, but he's overshadowed in both of his movies by the villains. See, and with the Christopher Nolan films, I was only there for the villains and the villains alone. And no doubt Heath Ledger is acting circles around everyone in The Dark Knight, but I think that overall Christian Bale's version of Bruce Wayne across the three movies gets a lot more room to breathe. And to kind of be the star of the show, despite the villains he has to fight. 
okay, that may be a fair assessment. I might give that to you. Any other thoughts before uh, we close out? I'm excited for Heather's. I'm excited for Heather's as well. That is going to hopefully be a fun time. It might be the only potential horror movie that was like running nonstop on the Lifetime channel. It was on the Lifetime channel? I have newfound respect for the Lifetime channel. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it next time. But yeah, so of course, thank you for joining us at Is It Horror? As we've already kind of said at the end of the last episode, we're saying it again at this episode, the next episode we're going to be talking about Heather's. For those of you that are aware that a TV show existed, we're not talking about that. We'll be talking about the Winona Ryder 80s film. So uh, yeah, join us back here for that. But yeah, hopefully it should be a good time. I haven't, I haven't actually ever seen Heather's, but heard a lot about it. Oh, you are in for a fucking treat, sir. Bring your popcorn <laughs> and your croquet mallet. Oh, I will. Yeah, it's, uh, it's. I'm sure, I'm sure I'll get that later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you will. Um, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, it was on the Lifetime channel all the time, and then it stopped in about April of '99, and it will be very clear why with the climax of the film. But we'll talk about that next time. So join us for that. I have been Steve. And I'm Brianna. I'm I'm Matt. Oh, God. Joe's first. I'm Matt still. (laughs) Are you still Joe? I'm still Joe. Okay, I'm Mitt. I thought I was Mitt. And I'm the ghost with the most. And we are a hot mess. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Is It Horror Pod, or you can email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself Is It Horror?